Hello, everyone, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by the bad mama jamma, Carrie Smith. Hi, Carter. Good after. Good morning, whatever it is when we air this. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Today, we have uh, a special guest that we're very excited to uh, talk to. His name is Dr. William Allen. He's an emeritus professor of political philosophy in the Department of Political Science and emeritus dean at James Madison College at Michigan State University. He's currently a visiting scholar in residence at the University of Colorado Boulder and served previously on the United States National Council for the Humanities and as chairman and member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's recognized for excellence in liberal education on the 1997 Templeton Honor Roll, and he's also been a Kellogg National Fellow, received the International Pre-Montesquieu, and was the 2014 Salvatore Award winner. He has published extensively, including a book called James Washington, A Collection, Rethinking Uncle Tom, The Political Philosophy of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and George Washington, America's First Perspective. I'm a little bit intimidated by this man's intelligence. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Allen. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning to you. I'm delighted to be able to join you. And I must commend you because you can pronounce Montesquieu as few people can. (laughs) (laughs) It's that high school French rearing its ugly head, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) That's one of many reasons we let Carter do the intros. Well, Dr. Allen, uh, I first became aware of you through um, through Nicole, who is one of our listeners who's actually been on the show before, and uh, she heard you talk about the 1619 project that the New York Times has been doing, and it was something that was vaguely on my radar, but the more I looked into it, the more kind of disturbing it was. I'm hoping that maybe you can, just for people who haven't been paying attention, what is the 1619 project, um, and and you know, what's the? Just talk about it, maybe generally, and then we can get into sure. your opinion about it. <laughs> well, that's certainly the question of the hour, and we are all actually asking that question of the New York Times. It's a Times project. It's been spearheaded by a Times reporter named uh, Hannah Jones. And we have been pursuing one question. Why are they doing it in the way that they're doing it? Which is to say, making an argument effectively that America was built by slaves. Not simply that slaves contributed a great deal in building the United States, but that slaves built the United States and built it against the negative influences and power of capitalism. So it's a very uh, distorted picture of the country's past and all of the efforts that led to its growth as a world empire. It discounts completely the thinking of the founding generation. For example, the headline in the entire project at the New York Times was a headline that said, the Americans rebelled and revolted against Britain because of slavery, in order to defend slavery, which is a documented falsehood one which even the Times now has reluctantly, after months and months of criticisms from legions of historians and scholars, finally conceded that that statement was simply not correct in an op-ed published just last week. But it took several months, three and a half months, to get them to do that much, which they did very grudgingly. So what is the project? The project is an attempt at reinterpretation of culture in the United States from an ideological perspective. 
that ideological perspective is one that wishes to say that what made America what it is, insofar as it's anything positive, was entirely the contributions of the slaves, and everything else was dead weight, dross, that would have destroyed it but for the heroic efforts of the slaves. Now, that's, of course, a fantasy. I mean, it seems so overly simplistic to say that about any group of people. I'm not sure why that would even be something that would be palatable to anyone who's a thinker. Well, it's very unclear why, but the lead author, Hannah Jones herself, has said in a differing context that she's making this argument in order to present a justification for reparations. And it's as if you can tell any fiction at all in order to accomplish some kind of policy objective, rather than showing historical veridity, faithfulness to the truth of history. It's awful. Dr. Allen, could you also... um... As I understand it, this curriculum, it's well, the the project has become part of a curriculum in many public schools. Could you talk about how uh, the New York Times partnered with schools or how why this is relevant, why people should care, especially if they have children? Well, they should care for two reasons. First of all, we are in the midst of a moment where a revival of civic education is gaining steam and is very important in the United States because we've been aware for a long time that we've seen a decline in civic education and study and learning about American history. Even students graduating from college often do so without any background in U.S. history. And they are simply incapable of referring to the simplest kinds of facts about what the United States was and how it became what it is. So so this is a, a vital moment in our country. And what the Times has done is try to step into that to give a slant to that civic education. So it is a curriculum project by design. It is not yet widespread, but they are investing huge sums of money in trying to get it adopted as curriculum material all across the country. And that's why so many historians have been engaged in saying this is simply wrong. It's mere indoctrination. And it is not, in fact, history, and it is therefore a disservice to the people of this country. So, so it's a very important thing because if it's not challenged, then it will end up showing up in curricula in the way some other ideological curriculum material has done over the course of the last generation or so. So I, I guess it's not surprising to me that there's people that want to uh, tell whatever narrative fits their political agenda. That I think that's... Yes normal. Um, But I guess the surprising part is that we have an institution, and look, I don't have a lot of faith in the New York Times, but at least they pretend to be uh, some some sort of legitimate institution. We have this institution who is, is, is backing this, and I haven't seen them back down too much. I mean, other than, I know you mentioned last week, they kind of conceded some points, but they're not really backing down. They're claiming this is really well-researched and this is all true. And I, I'm not really sure where the, the legitimacy comes from. Why, how, how come no one's saying this is just all bunk? We should abandon well, this. As been said, I have printed an essay in which I actually resurfaced the history of the New York Times and pointed out that when it was founded in 1850s, It was founded, in fact, as a newspaper that was defending the positive good argument for slavery, which was a Southern argument that the slavery was a good thing. Now, they're 
different ideological purposes, but they're still making the argument that slavery was the only good thing in the United States. So it means New York Times is at least faithful to its tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate that observation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I will also make the observation that, yes, you're right, that people will try to serve ideological interests when they create narratives around historical topics or even contemporary topics. But it is not normal for people to lie in doing so. At least people do so by trying to find some true supportive information for their positions. This is a case that's completely off the charts in that regard. And the Times has been unwilling to acknowledge that. And I, with many other historians, political philosophers, have communicated with them. I can give you one example of this. They said about Abraham Lincoln that he had certain opinions and attitudes about slavery, which, of course, they have exaggerated and, in fact, misrepresented. And I wrote to Silverstein, the editor of the New York Times Magazine, and I didn't give him any commentary of my own. I simply gave him a selection from Lincoln himself addressing the very question the Times had asked. And I posed a simple question. Why not let Lincoln speak for himself? Having uh. him interpret it. Let him answer the question, and you will see it flatly contradicts all that you're doing. I did not even get a response from Silverstein. So, so many people who have written at least got email letters back. He didn't even acknowledge that he had received that from me and that he had this in his hands now. See, part of the problem with this, we've resourced this, we've gone to experts. They've not gone to experts in the subject matter. They've gone to people who are tangentially knowledgeable about the history, who have other lines of inquiry and, and other disciplines, and they're calling those their experts. They are not the experts. They're, uh, the experts are legion in this country, many of whom have written to them. Gordon Wood is one, just one of the most prominent. Alan Guelzo is another who's very prominent. As I say, I and others have done. They have ignored real experts in order to retail pseudo or ersatz experts in the service of an ideological cause, which they're trying to sell as legitimate when in fact it is not. I, I looked through some of the, the essays and read, read bits of them, and I was trying to figure out, like, what are some of their themes? I mean, I already have my, I already, I, I admit I went in with a bias kind of suspecting what I think the agenda was, but I was really trying to figure out what the agenda is. And one of the recurring themes was that Capitalism itself is, uh, or at least American capitalism, America's approach to capitalism is uh, uniquely evil and a form of oppression that's basically directly related to slavery and parallels drawn between like cotton slaves and the oil industry. Um, I'm wondering if you, if you had to characterize what exactly you think their agenda is here, what would you say it is? It is definitely anti-capitalism. You can tell this just from the way they frame the argument. Capitalism didn't even exist in the form that we refer to it in the modern world at the time slavery was introduced and was only 150 to almost 200 years after that before it became current as a description of economic activity. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. The first slaves were introduced in 1619. Nobody referred to capitalism. They had referred to mercantilism long before they started referring to capitalism, so that it is an ahistorical argument. Again, the point is to say capitalism is wrong in this hour when there is a strong trend towards trying to reintroduce a defense of socialism. 
Mm-hmm. And I would point out to you that in my book on the Federalist Papers, I wrote an epilogue, and that this book was written and published in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and therefore the fall of Soviet communism. And we saw how the United States reacted. Our president at the time, the first Bush, was exultant about the power of capitalism and how we had demonstrated the failure of socialism. And I cautioned in my book, I said, this is a misrepresentation. We have not made an argument to disprove socialism. We've just misliked socialism and pretended that we had disproved it. The work was still to be done, and I would venture to predict that it will return. And so this is one of the few cases in which I will say that, yes, it has returned with a vengeance. My prediction was absolutely correct because we didn't do the intellectual work, the spade work, to lay it to rest. We simply were triumphant in that moment of history without being reflective. So now we're paying the price for that. I mean, I, I think uh, I think maybe we even did more than just let it fester. We seem to be feeding Marxist ideology in universities for generations yes. at this point, right? Yes, and that's very much corrected with our triumphalism because we were making a materialist argument. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is stronger, socialism is weaker. Capitalism gives you more goodies, socialism doesn't give them to you, therefore socialism is bad. Strictly a materialistic argument. That's not the problem with socialism. The right. problem with socialism was it denies the capacity of human beings for self-government. And that's what the United States, above all in the world, above all nations, has given concrete evidence of and provided the surest defense for. And it's a moral defense. It's not a material defense. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. You're reminding me. I know, uh, I know that you're religious, but you're reminding me of, of an argument that Ayn Rand used to make, which was she, she was very angry at the Republicans for making materialistic arguments in defense of capitalism yes. rather than moral yes. arguments in defense of capitalism. Yes, I remember that very well, having been a young undergraduate reader of Ayn Rand myself. Uh, that argument is not unfamiliar to me. <laughs> and I think it was, in that regard, a correct argument. And she derived course, her principles primarily from Aristotle, as she understood Aristotle, and therefore was thinking in ethical terms. And there is a relationship between ethics and morality, quite obviously. It doesn't have to be based in religion. And the defense of self-government in the United States, while it was founded in a fundamental Christian principle, namely the freedom of conscience, was a principle that understood that the freedom of conscience protected everyone, not just believers. So it didn't have to be a religious argument. Right. I, you're, uh, I watched a lecture of yours about um, uh, conscience related yes. to this, I think that you gave maybe a year or two ago. Um, and I think it was fascinating that you, um, you hit the nail on the head, in, in, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of uh, the, the difference between what we are, I don't want to say this, that rules for how the state operates really aren't sufficient for how society operates. There's, a, there's another important aspect for society uh, being able to function in a, in a moral and just and even efficient way beyond what the state is and isn't allowed to do. Yes, absolutely correct. The thing that we keep trying to drive home day by day in the American National Character Project, that le- lecture was the beginning of that project, and which we're still carrying on now at CU Boulder and beyond, is a project which is meant to emphasize precisely that we are, as a country, what we are as a people, not what we are as a government. The government is the expression of our capacities, not the reverse. 
So we can't expect the government to induce from us what it is we are responsible to impose upon the government. Yeah. Go ahead, Carrie. Well, I have a question about this is more of a, I guess, a, uh, what Carter might think of as a hippy dippy question of mine. <laughs> Maybe not. That's all questions language. are allowed, Carrie. Go ahead. <laughs> but so part part of what we do on this particular series, deprogrammed, is talk about my old belief system, which which I think is probably best most accurately described as identity politics based Marxism, yeah. and um, I call it SJW for short. That's the term that a lot of people know. But um, uh, one of the things that kind of got turned upside down when I was in that belief system is what you're talking about here, which is that this idea that the government would step in, that the government should step in and offer solutions to problems that maybe are not the responsibility of the government to offer, that are maybe more questions of a moral, like more of a moral question or more something having to do with society that that maybe the answers aren't to be found in government. How does, how does, how do you think that happens where does that spring from this human desire to have <laughs> to have, have the government have it it's, a, <laughs> it's a big question but <laughs> are we you're so right i mean look the difficulty with the social justice warriors is that they don't pay any attention to justice mm-hmm. uh, made clear already in classical thought justice is what we owe to one another it's about relationships among human beings it's not what's imposed by government upon the society. It's how we relate and deal with one another, whether we give due recognition to our fellows and providing what, of course, they deserve, what they merit, and, and whether we conduct ourselves in a way as to avoid acts of injustice. That's the core of it. So the, the social justice warriors have inverted the entire concept by thinking if you only had enough rules and enough gunpower behind them, you could make everybody just. Well, people don't become more just because they refrain under coercion from doing what you tell them not to do. That's (laughs) justice. Justice is when they want to prefer the good of another. That's how Aristotle defines justice in Book 5 of The Ethics, a preference for another's good. That's something that has to come from us. It has to emerge from us, and we acquire it through a certain kind of discipline, the discipline practiced of virtue, of ethics. Now, you can't do that through governmental regulation. Government can be a partner in that process, but what we discovered in the founding of the United States is government is only a partner in that so long as government remains always in the position of being subordinate to the authority of the people. It seems like this is a recurring theme with the, I'll call them pseudo-Marxists or that, that category, where there's like this blank slate or infinite malleability perspective of of people that if we just set up uh, rules X, Y, and Z, people will adapt through A, B, and C. And people are very adaptive, but they, they seem to be ignoring a lot about human nature often with their solutions. And this seems kind of related to that, no? Yes, I would say it's entirely related. I would say people are not so much adaptive as is they know how to cope. And so when you, <laughs> Better. you constrain them, they cope. And they find ways to deal with that constricted environment. Now, that creates distortions and externalities and makes, therefore, society less functional. But that's what you will do. That's the human response. We cope wherever we find ourselves. But wouldn't it be nice to find ourselves free so we didn't have to cope and we could truly adapt 
That would be the ideal world. Uh, so, maybe for the yeah. people on this call, but I'm not sure everyone would agree. <laughs> well, but to get back to the 1619 project, that's what's missing in the project. What we need to understand is that this is not the first time in this country people went back to 1619 to try to recover that history and put it in context. The first time happened in 1893 at the time of the Columbian Exposition, the Great Chicago World's Fair, which excluded the participation of American blacks. And so you got Frederick Douglass and Ida Wells and Frederick Barnett, who all, among other people, were lobbying and laboring to get included. Why did they want to be included? Because they wanted to show the extraordinary progress of American blacks in the aftermath of slavery. When slavery ended, there were four million black people in the country. By 1890, there were eight million. The population had doubled in freedom. And that doubling of population, you can expect, was accompanied by the kinds of social and economic progress. And in fact, the entire Jim Crow regime was put in place as a check on the obvious progress of the ex-slaves. It wasn't that it was a continuation of slavery. It was a reaction to the fact that freedom had shown its value. And so Douglas and Barnett, they, they, they produced like an entire book explaining what the failures were of the Columbian Exposition using the 1619 argument. But they didn't make an argument for saying that we want to somehow resurrect a defense of slavery. They used it to show that we can demonstrate that we are part of this great story of American progress and that what we've done since slavery is the manifest evidence of that. It was quite the opposite of what the New York tried to do with its 1619 project. So we have two 1619 projects, the one from 1893 and the one from 2019, and they are exactly opposite in moral purpose and effect. And I mean, Frederick Douglass, if I, if I recall correctly, Frederick Douglass, uh, when when arguing against slavery, Frederick Douglass explicitly said, uh, explicitly talked about the foundations, uh, the principles behind which America was built. He lauded those yeah. principles and said, "Those are the those are the ideals. We're not living up to the ideals. The ideals are noble. Here's how we're failing, and we should be ashamed yeah. of our failure." Which is a much different argument. Yeah, absolutely right about that. In 1848, he was tempted. He was a Gastonian at that time still. And so he gave a very important speech in which he raised the question, what country have I? And therefore was almost in the position of embracing the Garrisonian rejection of the Constitution. But four years later, by 1852, after further study, reflection, correspondence with people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, he had turned around completely and started defending the Constitution as an anti-slavery document. And when he gave the important speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July, he was calling America to recognize exactly what you just described, the power of its principles and how they could embrace all and not just some. So, so that, yes, he made that transition, became a stout defender of the promise of the United States. And that's what was reflected in his 1619 project in 1893. Something else I've noticed about the 1619 project is that there seems to be this underlying assumption that nothing has gotten better at all for American blacks and, in uh, fact, maybe even gotten worse. Can you address that perspective a little bit? Well, that's broader, of course, from the 1619 project. You might say that's the entire leitmotif of the left, that the left lives on the proposition 
that blacks are a caste apart, that they have made no advances, that there is systemic racism, institutional racism, uh, all white privilege, all of the various ways they use to try to describe metaphorically the plantation on which blacks still live and in which their identity politics seeks actually to imprison them. Because rather than seeing, you know, this question of identity, let me just say this a different way for a moment. We have, I have had a student on the first day of class this past term, and I asked the class, tell me, what is your identity? And a surprising number of them identified themselves with reference to their group, their background or their orientation or what have you. And so I asked them a few questions in particular. I said, now, why do you think that identifies you more than what you do? Yeah. Why is it that your conduct doesn't identify you? Why is it that the color of your skin or your gender or your sexual taste identifies you, but your conduct doesn't? And, and it was a moment of awakening for them because they realized that, well, yes, actually, I am what I do. <laughs> I, I am not what I look like. I am what I do. And it's Is like, that Has that changed over the years? I mean, you've taught for decades. Have you oh, yeah. seen a shift? Oh, yes, because it's now been ingrained. We've been indoctrinated so, so, so fiercely with this whole idea of diversity and identity that we are now beginning to embrace it as our natural narrative. And so we are sinking into forms of tribalism. Yes, they're they are super sophisticated intellectually, forms of tribalism, so they're not primitive tribalism, but they all have the same effect of locking people within their respective cohorts and persuading them that they can deal with one another only by dealing with tacit or official recognition of their membership in different groups. Well, that's apartheid. It may be cultural apartheid rather than geographical apartheid, but it is apartheid. And that's what the left has been pushing in this country, and quite successfully so that now it's penetrated all of higher education, most of corporate America, the United States military, and almost every significant cultural institution in the country. So, Dr. Allen, I have a question about when you started to see that shift. Mm -hmm. um, because when you ask people about identity, or even if you weren't asking that question before, when you think it started to become, uh, to penetrate everything, as you put it, because I, I was, I, uh, I'm going to age myself, 20, tw about 20 years ago is when I was in uh, an undergrad and would say, I talk about it as my indoctrination into this belief system, but I didn't see it. My sense is that it started to percolate in the mainstream and to affect like the mainstream, like the Democratic Party itself, um, the mainstream media, um, maybe about 10 years ago, five to 10 years ago? In, in one sense, you're right. You can trace what I would call heightened attention to it, mm. roughly to the period leading up to 2000, but especially in the period between 2005, 2010. And then it became hyperactivated. Mm -hmm. But important to remember that its roots go back to 1968. Many things happened in that year. And of course, the disastrous Democratic Party National Convention happened. And they had riots in the streets. And they were pushed by people like Fannie Lou Hamer from Mississippi for the exclusion of black people. And they came out and rewrote party rules and wrote in proportional representation to party participation in the Democratic Party. So that's what this is. At that point, 
That's also the year, of course, in which Martin Luther King was assassinated. And that was just after he published his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. And we see him enunciating that book, The Principle of Victimhood, and described in terms that said, black people will not progress in this country until the majority recognizes what it has done and relieves them, i.e. there's nothing they can do for themselves without the intervention of the country's majority. And so the whole logic of victimhood, which ran counter to everything that King had said before, in his earlier career, he was telling something different. He was actually encouraging black people to believe in themselves and to do it themselves. But in 1968, in Chicago, he gave a speech. And then in this book, he elaborated an argument that said, you can't do it yourself. And that was the beginning of victimhood, which then dovetailed the Democratic Party's rules of participation, which separated people into groups. And it has grown since then. That was the seed. What you saw by 2010 was the fruit. Wow, I didn't realize that about Martin Luther King. I always, you know, I always focus on the I have a dream speech and their kind of earlier uh, self-empowerment message. Uh, I didn't realize that he actually kicked off this victimhood movement. Yes, he did, unfortunately. So so that's part of the reason it, by the way, took root. Because other people who were in the position of speaking of victimhood didn't have the credibility, the moral authority. Mm. But he had moral authority because his initial work was to defend the principles of the country and to speak about self-empowerment. So that when he made the transition, he carried a wave of people who were devout followers with him. Do you see, look, Kerry Kerry is going to call me a pessimist. Rightfully so, I think. I sometimes wonder if there's any coming back from this. Like, I, I look around and I see generations after generation being indoctrinated into, actually, I, I think really maybe not even, yes, indoctrinated, but also be their ability to think rationally, just being destroyed in, in schools. And I really wonder, what's it going to be like when, when the people who are in college now are running this place? Well, remember this, that in every era throughout all of human history. People, yes, they think rationally, but they always think through the prism of their cultural inheritance. And so they are shaped in important ways by those who shape the culture. And that includes important political moments and figures, and it includes, of course, intellectual production. Uh, One of the cultural shaping things in our time was that which began with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Actually began in some ways with Teddy Roosevelt, but materially it began with Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he introduced the argument that freedom without security is impossible. Mm. It's the opposite of saying people who are free can secure themselves. It seems very opposite of what the founding fathers believed, if I understand. Founding fathers believed and Roosevelt knew it. He said it's time to redefine the rights. And his period of redefinition led to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights through the UN, his creation, in effect, and their explicit list of the rights that must be secured before people can be free, which were all material, Hmm. all material, so that until you make people materially secure, they cannot be free human beings. Now, that's a devastating argument in terms of human nature and the capacity of human beings. Everyone becomes a victim in an abstract sense on the basis of that. 
So what we saw in King in 1968 was actually the fulfillment of what Franklin Delano Roosevelt had initiated. So, so under the influence of statesmanship, you actually change cultures. That's the point. So can you, is there a silver lining to this? Is there statesmanship? <laughs> What's, should I not be a pessimist? Because you're, you're not helping. <laughs> well, well, there is this silver lining. <laughs> I don't mean it to be, to be overly sanguine, okay? But uh, we can discover what's happened to us. We can recognize it, even if we can only recognize it in retrospect. And we can liberate ourselves. We can free ourselves. It sometimes takes a revolution to do it. At least it takes an intellectual revolution, if not a political revolution. But we're capable of that if we will assert ourselves. So I, the way I put it to people is to say, the ball is in your hands now. It's fallen into your court, and it's up to you to learn how to say no to arguments that are unworthy and to spread that as far and wide as possible. Do you think, um, do you think the institution, uh, the intellectual institutions, I, I think clearly there's some change that's uh, just even, even because of technology, there's change that's happening in, in terms of the intellectual institutions in the U.S. Do you think that uh, perhaps that this is an opportunity to dispense with this uh, cabal of Marxism and maybe replace it with different leaders in intellectual thought? Well, I think the work has to be done now to uh, refute the Marxist argument, which is still too much alive among us. And it has therefore become very important to surface whatever intellectual currents there are that continue to challenge that. And they're numerous, so, so we must be aware of that. There are not only uh, publications, but blog sites, and there are even people on campuses who are prosecuting the argument. Not so much an argument in defense of this or that particular social arrangement, but an argument against the intellectual claims of the Marxist analysis. That's the foundation that must be undertaken. And, and I think it is increasingly being done. So simply by uh, getting engaged with those developments, listening to them, uh, propagating them, we are in effect pushing back the tide. And you don't recognize when you start out in that process that you're going to, that you're making any progress. It's a slow and incremental thing. But I have no doubt that over time it will succeed for the simple reason that the Marxist argument is wrong. <laughs> wrong scientifically, wrong morally. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I guess it's just a question of how long. Is it going to be 100 years? or And are we going to have to have a lot of suffering, as there has been in else, elsewhere in the world, before we recognize it? Or or uh, will it occur more quickly? Uh, I mean, you, cer you certainly see, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of the most uh, virulent anti-Marxist people are former residents of the Soviet Union that have come to the West. I've noticed yeah. Now, here's where the great strength of the United States comes into play. Unlike anywhere else in the world, there are practically no citizens anywhere else in the world than in the United States. I would qualify that with reference to Australia to some degree, uh, Canada perhaps. Uh, but very few other places can you find real citizens. In the United States, you have citizens. 
And so unlike the rest of the world, they're not going to wait for the collapse to push back and to awaken. They're going to push back because they still have that ingrained sense that, hey, I matter. I ought mm. to make a difference. I'll tell you a quick story about this. It will put it in perspective for you. When I was an undergraduate, I believe it was my sophomore year, maybe my junior year. I can't remember now. Probably my junior year now that I think about it. But in any case, I once wrote a paper. So this was ancient history. Long, long ago, all right, early 1960. <laughs> I, I wrote a paper about the Soviet Union in which I predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. And I predicted the fall on the basis of an analysis that said the people there are, are not citizens. They cannot exercise any claims or rights of citizenship. And that's going to build up a pressure that is going to become relentless. And they're going to demand to be recognized as citizens sooner or later. And then as that internal pressure builds up, that's what's going to lead to collapse the Soviet Union. So I made this argument in some great detail. It was a final paper, like 30 or 40 pages. And I got a B on the paper. And the reason I got a B, my, my professor specifically commented, says, these are very powerful arguments, but you really needed to document your sources. Well, I, didn't, <laughs> I was making an analysis. It was my argument. <laughs> your argument. My source is my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so I accepted my B because what could I do? I, I didn't have any, but it, did you send it back to him in the late eighties and ask for a regrade? I, I did not, but I should do that. Yes, <laughs> but, but of course, is we saw at the end of the day that's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union, in the Czech Republic, everywhere that that people finally took cognizance of their right to claim recognition as citizens. And that's what led to the overthrow of the Soviet Union. It wasn't so much our resistance or our running them into the ground through our military expenditures. It was the, the rising of this internal tension. Well, we don't have to go through that. So we are way ahead of the game in the United States. Hmm. So, you know, you're great. Go ahead, Carrie. I have a question which might get us into might get us into trouble. But <laughs> what we sometimes do on the show is just kind of think things through out loud. And if we don't want to go here, that's fine. But w one thing I'm thinking about when you're talking about earlier making the moral argument that Marxism is wrong um, morally as well. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why I think it's important to make that moral argument is because I see a lot of women who are in this ideology and who are pushing it. And I mean, I, I'm a woman who was in it. And I think a lot of, it appeals to a lot of women because they, it is sold as being um, a defense of helpless victims. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. sold as this victimhood thing right. that you're talking right. about. Right. And so women, um, this also makes me think of something Nicole told me, which is that, in these classes and lectures she's been going to, and one of them yours, she said, it's mostly men in these classes. There aren't a lot of women there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, can, <laughs> what can the people who are pushing for rational thought and critical thought and, and pushing for an examination of ideas, how can you make that more attractive to women? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> now, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. <laughs> you're, you're not going to get me to answer okay, that. Okay, good. I'll tell you that. 
<laughs> you could rephrase this, Carrie. How how do you make it more appealing to those people in society who might be attracted by this argument that Marxism is about helping the needy? Is that better? Yes. Yes. I, I think they must be engaged personally, and, and I think the opening of Carrie's comments actually point to the answer, because what she pointed to was people not having a sense of agency. That's the expression I use. And I have found that every time, whether with men or women, I engage them at that level and ask them, what do they think they're capable of doing? What kind of agency do they have? Can they be created? Can they change the world? Can they make a contribution? That if they enter into that, they will soon discover that it's not only something they can say yes to, but it's important to them. And they will cease to think of themselves as victims to the extent they think of themselves as agents, the ones who are actually making things happen, changing things. If you think of yourself as a victim, you are nothing but a patient in the bed waiting for a doctor. And you don't want to be a patient. You want to be an agent. And so, so I think engaging people at that individual level is what makes the difference, rather than engaging them with broad social theories. Personal intervention is what makes the difference. But there seems to be this, uh, I think Bush called it the soft bigotry of low expectations. There seems to be this like uh, assumption. I, I see a lot of, we'll say, Marxist sympathizer, kind of middle class Marxist sympathizers who would answer that question with, well, I have agency and I'm going to change the world. But these other people don't have agency. They're patients and they need me to come rescue them. That's exactly their attitude. That's the argument. And so you say to the supposed rescuee, don't put up with it. Say no to it. You, you want to do it. Mother, I'd rather do it myself. That's what I usually say to people. That, <laughs> that's the argument that gets through to them. I'd rather do it myself. You say I'm in danger, let me get myself out of danger. Don't Interesting. So you would go after, rather than trying and convince the people who are trying to appeal to Marxism to save others, you would go after the so-called victims and convince them that they're not victims. Precisely. That's where I would begin. That's not, uh, I think that's not intuitive. I think a lot of people want to be, and I think Carrie's question even, correct me if I'm wrong, Carrie, you're thinking about like, how do I talk to these people who are pushing Marxism rather than like, how do I talk to the people they're pushing it for or on behalf right, of? But if, but if, there is, if there's nobody drowning, who are they going to throw all the life things you know like they, right. that it's a good very good point because and even even myself as i've uh slowly left this belief system if i think about my interactions with men who still subscribe to these beliefs they don't know what to do with me so yeah i think it is the antidote <laughs> it kind of you you kind of just your existence destroys the belief system because the belief system says I should believe a certain way. I'm supposed to believe a certain way. And if I don't, then the belief system's wrong. <laughs> well, and I, I find there's great power, which I've experienced personally as a black person, when I say to someone who is intent on paternalizing and trying to save me that I don't need you, that it has an effect on them also. It's hard it, to argue with that, right? Insight for them. Yeah. 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 Um, just can we circle back just for a second to, um, I, this is related. My brain just works in a weird way. But uh, when I was thinking about, when, when I was looking at the 1619 Project, I was noticing there seems to be this conflation of, of 
slavery with inequality or non-equity. Can you talk yeah. about equality and equity and slavery and this big kind of, it seems like they're trying to make it a big hairy mess so you can't ascertain the difference between any of those things. Can you maybe help sort that out? Well, certainly. First of all, let's separate equity from equality. They're not the same thing. Equity is essentially fairness. Even as this practice in our courts, uh, we, we have a principle of equity, a legal principle of equity, which means simply this. General rules don't sometimes fit particular cases. And so we leave to the discretion of the court to adjust the law on grounds of equity, fairness, so that in an individual case it comes out right. So equity looks at individual cases. It doesn't relate the individual case to a general. It has nothing to do with equality, therefore, in general. On the other hand, equality doesn't have anything to do with equality of conditions, which is never achievable anywhere under any scheme anybody can imagine. And neither was it ever involved in the original predicate in the Declaration of Independence or the general theories of the founding era. What equality means is that we all are recognized as agents, self-governing individuals. We therefore stand on a footing in society and within the political arrangements of society where we're not disadvantaged relative to, to anyone else. That's our equality. We, we have the same opportunities politically and socially anyone else has. The results are going to depend on a complex interplay of forces, including our personal capacities. And we expect that. And so we will be different in terms of outcome. But we want to play on the same ground. But James Wilson said, what we are seeking to do is to assure an equal and impartial administration of the law. That's the equality we're looking for. And that means the law doesn't put one of us at a disadvantage relative to another. It doesn't take from one to give to another, and it doesn't prevent one from his fullest exertion on behalf of him or herself. That's equality. So, so equality means we all benefit from assuring our agency. Equity means we all have an eye out to be fair to everybody else. And so how would you, what would you say to the argument then that, well, there was clearly inequality during the era of slavery and that now needs to be corrected some five generations later um, in some way. How, like, what would you say to that argument? That's another one of my favorite canards for which I have given so many answers over the years, but perhaps no answer was more important than the one I gave to a student once in a seminar who had the unfortunate habit of simply explaining couldn't do anything because of the legacy of slavery. And he would go on and on at great length explaining the various occasions in which he's challenged or people in general are challenged to perform, but the legacy of slavery holds them back. And one day in the midst of one of his tirades, I said, take off your jacket. He paused and took his jacket off and then went on the tirade. I said, take off your shirt. He looked about and was very quizzical, but I was the professor, so he took his shirt off and then went <laughs> on with the tirade. I said, take off your undershirt. Then he paused, really. He thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? I said, I want to see the stripes on your back. Wow. Because oh. <laughs> if you don't have them, you have no reason to talk like this. I don't care what happened to your great-grandfather. I want to know what happened to you and what you can do. 
Right. You say you're carrying this. And it's the same story I conveyed after uh, addressing the movie Harriet on a radio program in Boulder. And before we started the program, the taping, the uh, host made some observations about the special perspective I would have as a descendant of slaves, one that she and others wouldn't necessarily share. As it happens, she, she's Jewish. And I looked at her and I said, have you forgotten Egypt? <laughs> and, uh, and how then, time flies. And, and, then I, and then I said, do you not understand there's nobody on the face of this earth whose forebears weren't at some point slaves, serfs, coolies, or what have you? That's true. That's everybody's story. It's not my unique story. And there's no reason the rest of the world should impose upon me the burden of carrying that badge that make you all carry it equally well. It's an insane argument. It is. And now, maybe we can talk about what... I think you brought this up somewhere, although I might be confusing uh, where I heard this, but, um, you know... The, the 1619 Project kind of, they, they seem to ignore that slavery existed, as you're saying, throughout all of history amongst all peoples everywhere. Uh, and they're, they kind of make it this uniquely American institution, but they don't talk about something that was also, if not uniquely American, at least America was one of the few places where this was born, which is the anti-slavery movement. Can you talk about the history of anti-slavery and that ideology? Yes, it's certainly true that they ignore uh, almost completely what the significance of the anti-slavery movement was, even though we have quite clear evidence just how significant it was. If we didn't understand it, we would have learned it from de Tocqueville, who visited the United States in the 1830s and published Democracy in America. Because at the end of the first volume of Democracy in America, the chapter on the three races in America, but Tocqueville actually makes a bold prediction. He, he first describes the tensions, the inherent problems in the relationships among the three races, meaning, of course, the Indians, the Europeans, and the Africans. And then he said, of the Indians and the Europeans, they might be able to find their way to some reconciliation. But as between the Africans and the Europeans, he says, this is never going to end except in a war of racial extinction. That was his prediction, written in Democracy in America. Scarcely 30 years later, not quite 30 years later, it ended not in a war of racial extinction, but in a war of white brothers, a brother's war. Because he did not perceive how deeply ingrained that commitment to the Declaration of Independence was and why it would lead to that kind of struggle among the brothers themselves. Well, this is what the story of anti-slavery in North America has been about. And it didn't just start in the 1830s, that's when abolitionism really took off, but it started even at the founding era. It was present in the era of the Declaration of Independence, whether in the deliberations of the legislature in New Jersey, whether in the growing realization on the part of George Washington, this is just a deep flaw, a real wrong about which I personally must do something in addition to testifying publicly that I think it's wrong, all which he did within the limits of the constitutional order and recognizing that you cannot simply impose upon people a moral, a principle of moral rectitude if you don't have legitimate authority to do so. And so, so this, and Lincoln recognized exactly the same thing, that it may be that it's an abstract right, as Lincoln put it, that I would rather see this ended, 
But I have to do what's constitutional, not what's expedient. And so I will do what's expedient when the Constitution permits it. The Constitution does not permit it. I cannot do what's expedient. I cannot follow abstract right. So, so that when you get George Washington liberating his slaves upon his death, which gets discounted by too many people, but wasn't entirely discounted by W.B. Du Bois, by the way, in, in the 1930s, he wrote a little drama based around this. Uh, the, the people failed to recognize that these deeply ingrained principles were principles that matured over time as a direct result of the founding of the United States. And that even the example of Washington, Washington knew his will was going to be a public document. And when he structured it the way he did, he was actually teaching, communicating to his countrymen what the right attitude should be, that slavery must end, but not end in some simple-minded leftist way in which you say, I declare slavery ended, don't even raise the question, what becomes of the slaves? Uh, Washington didn't think that way. He thought, if I'm going to free my people, then I have to do it in a responsible way. I have to build back my estate. Remember, he spent most of those latter years of his life in public service, not on his, his farm. And so, so it took a lot of effort to put himself back in a financial condition to be able to do what he did, which is to say, I'm going to provide for them. Because you don't just say, okay, you're free, go. Where are you going to go? In a country, a culture that's not prepared to receive you. What opportunity is there for you? What guarantee? You have nothing. And so, so he went out of his way to make certain that he could provide to them, that they could have some basic ability to have an opportunity to provide for themselves. And, and that is a principle that then was inseminated and grew into the strength of the abolitionist movement, which led ultimately to the struggle during the war in the 1860s that ended slavery. These things, little by little, grew into the fruit of the promise of the Declaration of Independence. And all the people who think it should have been done, all of a sudden, all at once, no need to uh, kind of cultivate opinion, sentiment, to bring the community along. They're simply mad. They're talking abstractions. They're not talking political realities. The real reality is that in the United States, as in a way in England, but it was a different problem in England, it took a lot of effort to get people in general to see that we needed to recommit to the full force of equality as expressed in the Declaration of Independence. This this strikes me as what you were talking about at the beginning. I believe you said something like, justice is what we owe to one another. Yes. Like the preference for another person's good. Yes. And and, and it, re it reminds me of you saying that because it's, it's like, uh, I, I haven't heard it expressed in this way before, that Washington knew his will would be a public document and he was sort of demonstrating to others how you should start yes. to change your views and behave that the government followed that, the change in the hearts, not the opposite. Yes, that's exactly correct. He, he knew that very well. I'll admit I've been one of those people who've kind of always dismissed that aspect of his freeing slaves and kind of saying, you know, in my mind, I've, I've bought into this. Well, that was too little too late. I mean, whoop-de-doo, George. Uh, but um, I really like the way that you describe this, and, and it's related to kind of what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that, um, society needs something more than government. There's something more important than government, which is how we relate to each other, and that needs to be that needs to be fixed first. And it reminds me of there's the Andrew Breitbart quote that 
politics is downstream from culture, or maybe he says culture is upstream from politics, but wh whichever one. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. right. And, and we on this show always say that philosophy is actually upstream of culture. And we, we like to kind of think about that as a, you know, one leading to the other. Uh, and if you look at it in that light, I, I think it's brilliant your, what you just said about how, if you look at it in a different way, Washington freeing the slaves is much more, his slaves upon his death is a much more sympathetic viewpoint than what I had looked at uh, or how I had considered it before. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it is something that requires us to be patient with and actually go back and reflect on the circumstances, the context, the words, everything. He did that not only with respect to slavery and the will, of course, but he talked about education in the world for the whole country. I mean, he, he said things that he meant to help shape the character of the people in his will. And he'd done those things previously as well. And, and even the uh, restriction that his, they would be freed on Martha's death, not on his, people have misunderstood, thinking that he wanted still to, as it were, exploit the slaves as long as his wife was alive. No, he was avoiding the widow's third, which was a legal provision that overrode the will of the testator. So that you could write a will saying, I'm freeing all my slaves, or I'm giving all my property to so-and-so, but the law required that the widow got a third of it, no matter what you said. Uh, oh. So if you say, I defer it to her death, then the provision that the states will be free is still going to operate. And a third of them will not end up being exposed to the danger of being kept in slavery. So that was, that was all, his, and he wrote his own will in the end, by the way. That was all his thoughtfulness. Wow. About how to get this thing done. And, and so most people are just, you know, they, they super, I'm talking about scholars now, are just superficial in their reading of these things. They don't, they don't look at what it really takes to be prudential and to have effect, to be a real agent in the world and change things. If, if we're going to, um, if we wanted to, to adopt the idea that the, ostensible reason for the 1619 project, which is ostensibly that there's not enough uh, about the history of slavery that's taught in schools, what would be the right approach? Or is that even something that you think is necessary right now? Well, the first thing I would say is that the whole idea that we haven't taught enough about either the history of slavery or the history of black people is another recent falsehood. I learned a lot in my boyhood. I can point to the strenuous efforts, beginning with Carter G. Woodson and even before Carter G. Woodson in the 1920s and through the 30s. I mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois's play in the 1930s, which was part of the great production during the 30s of that bicentennial uh, operation, or, or what it was, a sesquicentennial, whatever, I forget what number it was. But, but at all events, there was a time when there was a great deal more of this than happened more recently. So, so it is not true that we have systematically excluded it. It's only true that in the last two and a half generations or so, it has become a contested territory in which the absence of a consensus has made it very difficult to have any systematic approach. The emergence of specialized studies for different groups has almost itself single-handedly excluded general exposure to the history of all. Yeah, you see this on college campuses. You go to the group studies courses and say who's in the courses. Just like the observation Carrie made about not many women in these broad courses I teach. 
you go into one of these feminist studies or black studies or Chicago studies and look who's there. And what you see is this kind of self-segregating pattern going on. And the curriculum is going to follow that because it's communicated a message that that's what you're supposed to do. So the way to get more of it in is to break down these patterns that have emerged over the last couple of generations. And to go back to a more general study that everyone... General studies. Go back to general studies that require everybody to do history and not history of this or that group. What do you think the future of the 1619 project is based on what you've seen? Do you, or do we, is it still a threat? Is it still being rolled out to schools? It's still being rolled out. The Times and Silverstein have not related, as you properly acknowledge, but it's going to be a flop. It's, it's not going to survive. You and think? why? Because there, there are people who are even friends of the Times who recognize the mistake. And, and then the fact is that when Silverstein made that slight correction a week ago, that's because someone they regarded as a friend communicated to them, this is seriously an error. And that's the beginning. It's going to become an avalanche before it's done. Well, I've already heard on this interview two of your previous predictions that came true, so <laughs> I'm inclined to believe this one. <laughs> In fairness, one of them took like 30 years or something, right? I don't know. <laughs> Carter and I don't have a good track record with predictions, but I think you do, sir. No. <laughs> We're horrible at predictions. Um, yeah, but don't, do you think that, I, I guess, the, again, the, the pessimist in me thinks that, okay, so maybe this will die, but the New York Times will just resurrect this. They'll fix some of the, I mean, to the extent that they, ca- they only care about the accuracy of the history to the extent that it's so blatantly egregious that they'll get caught. So I feel like, they'll just patch it up in a few areas and repackage it and try again. It depends on the course of politics in the country. If the politics of the country change in a way that completely frustrates their ambitions and what they've worked on for the last three years, then they're going to give it up and go on. Because they're not going to knock their heads against a wall if the politics change sufficiently. So in that sense, what the Times will do is going to be very contingent on the political course of development over the next 18 months. Got it. Well, uh, Dr. Allen, do you have any kind of final advice you would give to maybe late, late high school, early college students looking to learn accurate history? I will say what I said to my children when they headed to college and they went off on their college tour. And I sent them off with their mother. I didn't go with them. And I said they could go anywhere they wanted. They could look at anything they wanted. But they only had to do, promise me one thing. When they got to each campus, they would ask deliberately the question, what are you going to teach me? And if they don't have the guts to answer that question, I will not permit you to go there. If they do answer it, you'll be in a position to judge. So I think that's what you will say to youngsters. Don't go anywhere where they won't answer that question for you. And answer without equivocation. That's a pretty, that's an illuminating, that that question, that very fundamental question is being evaded. I hadn't thought of that before, but uh, that's scary. Are you saying that most universities won't answer that? They can't. Most have lost their way. They've lost their mission. Wow. Well, Carrie, do you have any final questions? Uh, my brain shuts down after about an hour and a half. So, (laughs) 
we're approaching that point. But I, I'm full of questions. I've taken more notes than any interview. I would love to talk to you any any time you want to come back about other subjects. That would be. I would be more than happy with that. So thank you for your time today, Dr. Allen. And um, if people want to learn more about you, where can they visit you online? Uh, well, or I can they? A website that's not very well maintained, but it is williambarkleyallen.com. All righty. Thank you. Well, thank you again. Uh, and have a great day. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure to join you. And uh, you're certainly most welcome.